0: Hello and welcome back to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Smith, and I think it's time to talk about money. I started this podcast as a resource for business owners and aspiring entrepreneurs, those that have taken the leap, created a business, and are in the process of growing it, or possibly sold and exited. You know, in my day job, when I speak with entrepreneurs and I ask them what their single biggest financial concern is once they've sold their company and received a capital sum, the answer is often, Alan, I just don't want to lose it. I don't want to mess it up. Anyone who started a business knows just how difficult it can be at times. And if you manage to navigate the inevitable rollercoaster ride that being an entrepreneur involves and you've managed to create an economic success, the last thing you want to do is expose it to unnecessary risk. And that's why I was delighted to invite Dave Butler to come on and share his wisdom with our community. Dave is the CEO of what I've often called the best-kept secret in investment, Dimensional Fund Advisors, and he's literally one of the smartest guys in finance. I've had the pleasure of meeting with him several times, and I can tell you that he's a deeply thoughtful guy, super high integrity, and just passionate about helping investors succeed. During our conversation, Dave explains his journey from playing pro basketball through his early days on Wall Street and now leading Dimensional and all the lessons he's learned along the way. Lessons such as why business owners should be wary of hiring a specific type of fund manager or wealth advisor. He reveals the three key areas that you really must focus on in order to maximize your chances of long-term investment success. And he breaks down his list of essential attributes to look for if you plan to hire a wealth advisor or a money manager. And towards the end, after his over 30 years in the money management business and now running a company that manages literally hundreds of billions of dollars or pounds, His personal definition of wealth is just brilliant. Just before we listen, I'd like to ask for a very quick favor. We're currently on 97 five-star reviews. And of course, I'd like to hit 100. I promise to stop mentioning it once we get to 100 reviews. So please take a minute now to go to the Apple podcast platform and leave us a five-star review and perhaps a few positive words. And of course, be sure to click click subscribe button to ensure that you get notified as soon as we post new content. Thank you so much in advance. It really, really helps. And now, back to the show. Packed full of stories, anecdotes, and words of wisdom. You are going to enjoy this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Dave Butler. This is Alan Smith, and you're welcome to the Bulletproof Entrepreneur Podcast. If you're looking for ideas and inspiration to guide you on your business and personal journey, then you, my friend, come to the right place. Great to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Alan. Thanks so much for having me. Well, good morning to you. Good afternoon here. That gives an, ind- as an indication that you're not local to me. <laughs> Where are you speaking to us from today, Dave?
1: Yeah, I'm in uh, beautiful Austin, Texas uh, this morning, and yeah, this is my, my home, my headquarter over the last 15 years. So I'm a California kid that became a Texan
0: over the last uh, 15 years. Interesting, interesting. Now, Dave, I really want to get into sort of the the, the, the sort of core of the subject matter that we've got underway today. But I want to start by saying that you and I met here in London uh, a couple of months ago, and I'm, I'm six foot three, and you tower over me. I you t- you had to sort of crane <laughs> my neck to look up to you. So that might give the audience a clue as to how you started your career, because you didn't start in finance, did you? What was your initial sort of you know professional career? How did you sort of get underway through school, college, and beyond? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, I'm
1: about six foot eight, so maybe I guess I'm five inches taller than you, um, which is um, kind of the norm in my life. I've I've usually have um, I'm usually the tallest guy in the room and so forth. But uh, I do have a younger brother, and I'll talk about him in a minute. But he's seven feet, so I. When I'm with him, I'm always the little guy in the family. Uh but yeah, we you know, both of us we we grew up as um um guys that just played basketball and and um loved the game. And as we uh grew, uh, we started to get more and more attention from uh college and university coaches. And um, as I said, he became a seven footer, I'm six eight, and we had the opportunity to go play college basketball and study. Um he ended up going to Stanford, I ended up going to Cal. So if you're a you know, American sports, Cal and Stanford are big rivals and, you know, kind of the, the the two on the West Coast that are considered, you know, great academic schools, but also great athletic schools. And so we um, I ended up choosing Cal. Uh, I actually chose Cal over Stanford. And that was a, a big decision for me. Um, my uh, I tell a story about my mom. Um, you know, I had get committed verbally to Cal to go play basketball at Cal. And the Stanford coach, who I didn't like at the time, was fired. And they brought in a new coach who I loved. And I, I got a phone call from that new coach and the coach said, hey, you know, we'd like you to come to Stanford. We'd like to change your mind. And so I hung up the phone and I walked out to, to my front yard I started shooting baskets. And then my mom came out and she said, you know, Dave, I heard your conversation. You've already committed, you've given your word to Cal. She said, I'd be very disappointed if you changed your mind now. And as I always say, you know, the, the one thing you don't want to do is disappoint your mother. So I stayed That's with right. Cal. Turned out to be a great uh, decision for me,
0: and uh, had a really fun career. Fantastic! What what a great story! So immediately, I'm thinking, have you know, you've seen that movie uh, Air? The whole sort of Michael Jordan and the, 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 uh, that sort of it's, it's reminiscing. You know, the, the the moms being influential in the decisions taken by the the, uh, the the kids playing basketball. So great story, Dave. Thanks for sharing that. So how did you continue? Did you, you obviously you you played college basketball? Uh, did you go? Did you go into pro basketball after college? What was the story then?
1: Yeah, it was uh, you know kind of a, a, a bit of a navigation through my uh, my basketball career. But I finished up at Cal, um, uh, and I got drafted by the Boston Celtics uh, uh, back in 1987. And long story short, is there was a strike in the NBA that year, so um, they decided that they wouldn't have a, a season because of the strike. Uh, so I wasn't allowed to go to the camp. I didn't get a chance to try out. And my agent at the time, I was young, you know, nineteen year old guy, or I guess it was twenty, twenty one, twenty two at the time, s- sitting on the couch at home and basically thinking that I would not play basketball for the whole year because the NBA was on strike. And and uh, my agent called me and said, "Oh, there's a team in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, that wants you to come over and try out." So they said, "We'll get, we'll give you a thousand dollars and we'll we'll fly you to Turkey." And I thought, well. It's either sitting on my couch for another week or making $1,000 and playing basketball in Turkey for a week. And uh, I, had, you know, I had $227 to my name, so I thought that was a pretty good deal. So I went over to Turkey, um, got over there, it was in really good shape because I was prepping for the Celtic camp and uh, had, a, had a good tryout, and they offered me a, a big contract that um, I felt was uh, too, too big to turn down. So I ended up playing my first year in uh, Turkey um, as I started my, my pro career.
0: Wow, what what a what a story! How interesting, and it just shows you how life's kind of twists and turns just because of the challenges of the problems at the NBA. The time you find yourself in old places in Turkey, pro contract. Then, how long did you stay there for?
1: Stayed there for a year. So, uh, going back to your twists and turns, at the end of the first year there in Turkey, I ended up tearing up my uh, my calf and my Achilles, um, and had to kind of fight through that injury through the end of the season, and uh, came back to California. Decided to. the uh, side of my leg just wasn't in great shape, so I um, had an opportunity to go to Tokyo, Japan, and uh, in and uh, in Japan, I only had to practice two days a week. Uh, so I I, uh, I decided to take a job in Japan. So I lived in Yokohama, Japan, for a year, played basketball there. My leg still bothered me a ton, and at that point, I kind of recognized that my NBA career, my NBA aspirations of playing pro basketball in the U.S. were kind of on the decline. Uh, so I had I had started my my MBA my master's at at Berkeley um, at the end of my basketball career. So I decided that I would take a year off after Tokyo after Japan, go back to school, finish up my MBA, uh, and then uh, potentially hopefully hopefully get my my calf back in order and be back into the NBA kind of mix. But by that time, I realized I I uh, was was not going to be able to do that with my leg. And um, long story short, actually, I ended up in England in Birmingham, England for. About a month and a half, which is kind of ties me into you know, this this uh, podcast, which is kind of funny. Uh, and I was in uh, Birmingham for about a month, and I was uh, just you know came to the recognition that I wasn't going to be able to play anymore. And my at the end of my um, MBA, I'd actually interviewed with a number of big Wall Street firms uh, for investment banking jobs. And one of those firms called me while I was in Birmingham. Called my mom, and then she passed on the the phone uh, number to me. Uh, so I got a hold of these folks and and um, and uh, in, when I was in Birmingham and, and had a conversation with them, and they said, "Hey, we'd like to have you come to New York and take a job uh, at one of the big banks in Wall Street." So I think it was wow. it was a Saturday wow. morning. Yeah, you know, I walked into the coach and just said, "Look, you know my my basketball career feels like it's kind of coming to an end, and I have this opportunity to be on Wall Street. Which in those days in the '80s, you know, being on Wall Street is where you wanted to be if you were in finance." Yeah. And I told him, I'm, I'm going to take the job. And so I got on a plane on Sunday morning, got into New York City Sunday night. My brother was the guy from this the, the Knicks uh, he, from Stanford. He was playing with the Knicks at the time. Wow. Okay. And uh, so I borrowed a suit from him. It was a little baggy being a seven-footer, <laughs> and I'm only 6'8". But uh, I, I walked into the office on Monday morning and started my finance career. So people often ask, how, how do you transition out of sports and into real
0: life? And I always tell people my, my transition was about 24 hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you, you didn't have much time to think about it. One, one day you're in a basketball court, the next day you're in an investment bank in Wall Street. Yes. A, incredible story. And look, as much as I would love to, I love sport, I love talking about sport all day long. Um, we're, we're now at the, the sort of the, the, the entry level into the world of business, which is, you know, obviously we'll talk about where you are now, what you're doing now, and uh, all the interesting things that your organization is getting up to. But. You find yourself because, of course, if 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 a sport career is behind you, unfortunately, you know through injury, you have got to think about your future. You're a young man in your early twenties, and as you say, you arrive Wall Street Wall Street in the 1980s. Well, we've all seen the the movie. We've all seen what was uh, going on. Yeah, you know, I guess an exciting time, an energetic time, a lot of money being made. Um a, a young man would probably, yeah, would 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 aspire and would love to to do that. So. Tell me about your early days on Wall Street. What was life like? What were you doing? Well, it was uh, pretty close to what you see in the movies. Um, it was, uh, you know, I had
1: my MBA and I was working on my CFA and I had done all the, what I thought was all the financial education that I needed to to do to um, succeed and have a great career and enjoy it. And uh, as you and I have talked about, uh, you know, I was, I think I was probably a handful of years, two or three years into my time in New York and, um, I just had this kind of epiphany that um, what I was doing um, didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, Um, and I wasn't enjoying it as much as I had hoped. And um, I often tell the story—this is kind of more of a personal Uh, story—I was on the institutional bond desk, so I traded uh, institutional bonds as a salesperson. Uh, But I also had a a quote-unquote broker, a stockbroker at the time, uh, a guy named Tom, and Tom used to call me and say, you know, I've got this stock idea. I've got this stock tip. Uh, we think this stock is going to go up or down and so forth, and you should invest in it. And as as we always say, that was sort of the definition of advice, uh, investment advice in those days, was to, to get somebody like me, an individual with, you know, a little bit of money uh, to buy and sell stocks. And the more that that broker did that, the more commission they made and the better compensation uh, they had and so forth. So, that was the business, and um you know, my guy Tom would call me, you know, probably twice a day, and he would su- suggest different stocks. And the story I always tell was that in 1994, I uh, took a position in a, a stock called Boston Chicken, um, and he, you know, he said, "All oh, the analysts were gonna, were saying that the stock was gonna go up by by six points the next day when earnings came out," and I had done all my own individual work, so I was a CFA, almost a CFA, I was an MBA. I had done all the discounted cash flow analysis. I'd looked at all the numbers. I'd you know, looked at all the charts, and I, I thought that this was a good stock to buy. And as I tell the story, this is I, I bought it at 16. It was supposed to go to 23. I woke up the next morning, pulled out the newspaper, and it went down to 6. Huh, right. And I thought that uh, for a moment there, I noticed there was a crease in the newspaper, so I kind of pulled the crease apart, hoping there was a 1 in there, but there wasn't. Uh, so I'd lost about half my net worth. Uh, in this one stock trade, and so it was kind of a wow. uh, I'd call it an aha moment of recognition that this idea of investment advice at that time just didn't work uh, for individuals and didn't work for um, you know long term investing and and long term retirement plans and and so forth. So um, I, I had this moment where not only my 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 business uh, career was felt a bit stalled to me, but then also my on the personal side, my investing the way. Wall Street was suggesting we should all invest was not the right answer. Uh, And I decided to get out of uh, investments and finance completely. I was going to go be a a coach, basketball coach and a teacher in California. And um, as I was in the process of that, I happened to open the Wall Street Journal one morning and saw an ad on the 17th page that that said money manager, Santa Monica, California, That, that money manager happened to be dimensional fund advisors. And uh, that kind of brings me to a, the whole nef, def, next sec, section of my life.
0: Wow, wow! What a story! It, it is, you know, I guess like a lot of people and you in particular. It's twists and turns and opportunities. And what's interesting to me initially about that, Dave, is you you were you challenge the if you like conventional thinking. We can all look back and um, you know hindsight's a very precise science, and we we'll say, well, you know, and you know this is obvious, but it certainly wasn't obvious in those days, because that's the way things were done. And, you know, lots of people had an investment advisor and lots of people would talk about, as you say, the, the, the anticipated, the, the, the price is going to go up next week or next month, and everyone's sort of gazing into their crystal balls. And let's face it, a lot of this still exists right now. And we'll, we'll sort of dig into that in a minute as well. There's still a big part of the investment industry and the investment advice industry that kind of believes in this stuff as well. So you see this fortuitous advertisement in the newspaper, And you think, and I think the location probably helps. Being a California guy himself on the West Coast, Santa Monica, so you apply for this role. So this is obviously the early stage of your relationship and your career. Then with Dimensional Fund Advisors, who, and we'll talk about this in a second, who I consider to be the best kept secret in investing, which is why I was keen to have you on uh, and, and have this conversation. So tell me about that. Tell me about the early days when you joined Dimensional. What, how did what role were you uh, undertaking? What did you do with them, and how did your career progress from there?
1: Yeah, well, it was it was as you said, just a, a twist and a a lucky twist in that case that that I was able to uh, you know find this ad in the Wall Street Journal and and um, to my surprise, I I sent a resume in and and they they called me and said we'd like to have you come in and. I went up to the uh, 11th floor in Santa Monica and and there was a gentleman named Dan Wheeler who uh, was the first independent advisor that used Dimensional funds and was became a true mentor of mine. And then uh, David Booth, who uh, was the founder of the firm and a gentleman named Merton Miller, who was one of the first Nobel prize winners to work with Dimensional. So one of the five uh, up to this point who have, have worked with Dimensional. Uh, he was there in the lobby and um David suggested that, that uh, Dan and I take Merton to lunch. And so my first uh, interaction with dementia was uh, with a Nobel Prize winner in finance. Nice. And the contrast between what I had assumed was finance and what I had heard from Merton Miller on that day was just uh, was a revelation, really. Uh, and I spent you know, four or five years as a finance student trying to look at you know, stock valuation, discounted cash flows. You know, I, I knew all that stuff very, very well. Uh, and now I had a, a Nobel Prize winner come in and say, basically, you don't need to do all that. Um, you need to know, know some really basic things about finance to be a successful investor. And I can remember the three things that he mentioned that day. He said, you know, number one, he says, uh, uh, diversification is your buddy. Uh, he says, markets work. And I can explain what markets work means. And he says, costs matter. And he said, if you can, if you can handle those three things as an investor, you're going to be in very, very good shape. And, you know, of course, there's a lot of depth between all three of those really simple concepts. But uh, when I look back at it, you know, 30 years later, and I'm coming up on my 30th year at Dimensional, uh, those three tenets are really the most important kind of tenets that uh, any investor has to think about. So anybody listening to this podcast, if you can just, you know, be diversified, stay disciplined, uh, recognize that markets work, prices reflect information very quickly, very hard to add value by picking an individual stock, et cetera, and keep your costs in a reasonable uh, level, uh, you're going to be pretty
0: well off as an investor. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, uh, I, I think at this moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause and just give a bit of context here because your role, just correct me if I'm wrong, you're co-CEO now of Dimensional Fund Advisors. Dimensional Fund Advisors are effectively, whatever you call it, an investment management company, an asset management company with, what are you, last time I looped, 600 billion or probably more than that now, that'll be a a very significant player in terms of assets under management. Um, Not a well-known brand for various reasons, which we'll say in in terms of, you know, for the sort of retail investors and people, uh, a lot of people won't have heard of you to the same degree. They might've heard of some other competitors who, you know, advertise on the back of billboards and buses and newspapers, which is why I've referred to Dimension in the past as the best kept secret. But, just to position, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are business owners uh, or they're aspiring entrepreneurs. And what a lot of them are aiming to do is to, is to scale their business, is to build it over a period of time. And they're looking for you know, a positive liquidity event. They, they would sell at some stage. They will exit their business to a strategic buyer or to a private equity company. And that presents a different set of challenges kind of nice problems to have because you're no longer a business owner. And so you've got some sort of personal uh, uh issues and 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 sort of uh identity about, you know, what you are now. But you've also got this issue in that you've definitely, you've got a, as we say in the UK, you've got a chunk of change. you got often a significant amount of money. And what often, again, in my experience, m- most of the business owners I know, they haven't spent a huge amount of time studying the market, studying how to optimize returns because they've been too busy building their corporation, building their organization. And now they've got this challenge and they've got a lot of money and they don't want to lose it. And sales of businesses are often public information. They're often known to you know, sales teams from various investment organizations and banks. And I've spoken to many successfully exited entrepreneurs over the years who've sold their business to say, wow, you know, I've never been so popular. They get invited out to, um, to events, they get invited to meetings, they get invited to hospitality by various investment companies who are pitching to manage their money. Uh, and they're confused because everyone sounds the same and everyone looks, everyone looks professional and everyone's nice and everyone's got a silky sales pitch. So what are your thoughts on that, Dave, for those successfully exited entrepreneurs who are looking for somebody to look after their wealth, to manage it effectively and efficiently, what are the sort of key attributes? What should they have on their, their checklist? What sort of things should they consider? What sort of things should they perhaps ignore or avoid? What are your thoughts? Well, it's a
1: really great question and uh I've spent years talking to business owners who have in my mind have won um you know, and, and just you know reflecting back on my story, just like a lot of the business business owners that are listening, they probably recognize it in that win um that that actually resulted in a, in a you know big big chunk of money, if you will. Uh, there's probably a lot of twists and turns that um, happen to be you know some positive, some negative, and and they've navigated their way through it and they've succeeded. So that's what I always start with. I said, look, you, you've won, you've you've been successful. Um, you don't have to win again, if you will. You don't have to succeed in an individual stock situation or an individual company. Uh, what you want to do is you want to contemplate how do you maintain those winnings uh, in in the most efficient manner. And I think the important part, and, and going back to your uh, your uh, comment about us not being a well-known manager, we're you know we're the eighth largest money manager in the United States, uh, and pretty much unknown here as well. And Part of that is because we don't advertise and we don't um, we don't spend a lot of money uh, on billboards and commercials and so, that sort of thing. What we do do is we work with uh, financial advisors. We're an institutional money manager. We started out with the biggest institutions in the world. And we've actually started working with uh, financial advisors like yourself. And the idea there is we think the advisor's role is really being the client expert. Um, they know all, they have all the knowledge on the client. Dimensional is a capital market expert. So we put together the most efficient portfolios possible, lowest cost, most diversified, daily uh, traded uh, portfolios are going to give you efficient access to the capital markets. And we think the combination of those two, the dimensional capital market expertise and the advisor's client expertise gives the client the best shot for a, a great client experience. So our view has been that, um, particularly for you know business owners who have succeeded, uh, once you've succeeded, you want to start thinking about, again, how do you uh, deploy that capital into the capital markets in the most effective and efficient way possible? And, and going back to my Merton Miller comments, the most efe- effective, efficient ways to do that is definitely to consider diver- diversification definitely to consider tax efficiency, definitely to consider uh, transaction efficiency. And to do that, you know, oftentimes, uh, in most cases, I think I have a financial advisor. You, having an advisor uh, as your counselor, coach, uh, disciplinarian, um, somebody who can talk you through not only investment issues, but can talk you through family issues and charitable aspirations and that sort of thing. It's a hugely valuable role uh, and I can't imagine, you know, in my situation without my advisor, how I would even go about thinking about whatever kind of worth I have, uh, how to deploy that, uh, in the markets and, or all the other things I want to do with my family as well. So very important decision. And I think it's something that, uh, you know, the successful entrepreneur, we've seen hundreds and thousands of them come through, uh, some of the financial advisors we work with here, uh, and in the UK, um, you know, those decisions are, are massively important, but, uh, the mindset has to be a little bit different than the mindset that they had maybe when they were developing a business that became very, very successful.
0: Yes, I think that's a key point. That's very interesting. All the effort and energy about, as you say, winning. You're right, you've won. Often talking about um, you know, life-changing sums of money. Often they don't need to ever work again, but they've got that entrepreneurial cr- creative streak. Yeah. And they, there's a certain amount, I still want to win, I still want to win. I want to get the best returns. I want to get the best investments. And there's a lot of kind of, I think, coaching or education to say exactly as you say, you've already won. The rule now is, now I, I, I'll tell you, a guy said to me a while ago, again, successfully exited uh, business owner. He was very profound, but he said, and quite kind of touching and poignant. He said, this, this money I've got, he said, that represents 24 years of my life. It represents missing school sports day. Missing my daughter's recital because I worked late that night because we had a deal going on. Missing all those things. Arguments with my wife over the time. Some challenges here, challenges there, some health issues. This is what it represents, Alan. Don't mess it up. Don't mess it up for me, please. It's so important. And that sort of idea of you no longer need to kind of, you know, shoot the light. You still want highly competitive investment returns. You want access to the very, very best, the best research, the best evidence, the best intelligence. But you no longer have to take the big bets because the big bets could challenge that, that, that lump of money which represents decades of your life and the experiences you've had. I'd like, if I may, Dave, just to begin to unpack in a bit more detail what you said b- b- before in terms of what are, the, from an investment point of view, you know, what are your buddies? What are the things you really need to focus on? So can we start and go through this? So the first one you said was diversification. Tell us a bit more about what you mean by diversification and what sort of diversification people like Dimensional provide.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking as you were speaking about these these people that I know that have had successful exits from from companies, and, and you're right, they're, and I include myself in this. I'm sure you do as well. You know, we're, look, we're all competitive. We all want to win. We've put a ton of work into something uh, to get to where we, we've gotten. And, um, you know, I think... What sometimes people have a problem with is kind of disconnecting from that and saying, OK, how does that apply to the investment space and the investment world? And, and what do I do now? Um, but I go back to, you know, it's funny that first uh, lunch I had with Merton Miller, the Nobel Prize winner. You know, they I remember watching or seeing an article about him and they asked him, he said, you know, Merton, you're a, a fish and markets guy. And, and uh, do you pick stocks? And he said, he says, yeah, I do. He says, but I, I do, I just buy one or two stocks on the edge of my portfolio. So there's a, there's a big differentiation between your investment portfolio and your speculative portfolio. And in essence, you know, when, when these business owners have, have built their business, they've, they've been in the speculative space. They've, they've had, they're working on one stock, one idea, one concept, one initiative, whatever it might be. And it, it worked, which is amazing and great. And now they've won. So, so then the question is: Now that you've got this pool of assets, you got to start thinking about what you know. What is investment, and what's in speculation? And we all speculate. I have speculative stuff that I do around town that it's fun, and I invest in and so forth. But I don't. I don't put ninety percent of my money in that speculation. I put, you know put two or five or two, maybe you know six percent of my assets into the fun stuff, and that keeps me interested and so forth. The other ninety five percent is going back to what we just talked about, is is low cost, it's diversified, it's tax-efficient, it's transaction-efficient. And you know the dimensional story is one that um, really builds off of the classic base of indexing. Indexing is fine for the reasons we just talked about, low cost, diversification, tax efficiency, et cetera. Um, but it's also rigid, and in often cases, uh, people lose money um, when they when they have rigidity in terms of how they actually manage their, their money, so Dimensional takes that rigidity away by by looking at prices daily, transacting the portfolio in a way that's going to you know position it in the best possible spot in the capital markets to get the premiums that we've seen in the historical data. Uh, and so there's a differentiation there between Dimensional and an index, and that's a, I think an important concept as well. But the important thing I've, again for the for the the winner, the the person who succeeded, who's put all this effort into their work, is exactly what you said. They won, and now you know risk. Risk is a is a um, is a preference at this point. Risk is not a requirement. They took the risk, they won. Now they can decide whether they want to take risk again. And in most cases, successful business owners who have already taken the risk and won don't need to take risk outside of a a very rational, efficient uh, market like portfolio that, uh, that I think most of our advisors that we work with here in the UK uh, put their clients
0: in. Mm. So just talk a bit, a bit more about that. When you say diversification, do you mean with the underlying number? Because I've seen some, as you say, some, some people, some wealthy people, and they buy some stocks. They might buy 10 or 30 or 50 stocks. You're talking about significantly greater diversification, both sort of globally and in terms of the actual number of underlying Securities that you end up owning through a fund—that's presumably what you what you're talking about. Just huge diversification. Diversification is your buddy, yes, yes. And when you talk about a global diversification,
1: there's about thirteen thousand stocks that a globally diversified uh portfolio of dimensional funds would be invested in. So, um you know, two stocks is better than one. Five stocks is better than four. Thirteen thousand stocks is better than five, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you 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 gain and you benefit the uh, the individual stock risk is eliminated or reduced by having more and more diversification. So diversification is really going back to his point. Diversification is your buddy. Yeah. It's the one quote unquote free lunch in the capital market space that you can take advantage of for sure every year, every time uh, every day. So that's the, the idea is to, is to be diversified not only in UK stocks or in U S stocks. Sometimes people will say, Oh, I, I should just buy Tesla because it's going to be a great, it's going to be the big winner. And and then, you know, Tesla goes up and down the volatility around Tesla. That's individual stock volatility that you don't get paid for as an investor. And that's a hard concept for people to understand. You get paid for systematic risk, which is market-wide risk. You don't get paid on individual stock risk. Um, So that's an important concept when you talk about diversification is that you want to avoid individual stock risk. You can, you know, like, like all of us, you know, in in the U S people go to Vegas and they, they bet on a particular game or they, they go on a crap table one time and they win once or twice or three times or even four times. But it's very rare that you're gonna have somebody walk away from from you know Vegas if they play every year uh, on and on and on with with you know winnings, if you will. And the same thing with the stock market. The the main point with the stock market, people don't don't really recognize is when we say prices reflect information. That means the markets are so efficient; they're so fast with with all the information that they digest. It's an information process machine, and anybody, me, you, any smart individual, any stock manager, et cetera, et cetera. The idea that they're going to actually outperform this collective wisdom called the market, the 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 uh, information process machine, it's a, it's a very very difficult ask. People just don't do it, and there's fifty years worth of data that suggested stock pickers uh, active managers don't add value above and beyond just a diversified portfolio of stock. So that's a, that's a pretty big concept. And the, and the issue there is again, going back to the cost aspect, you know, if you're going to pay somebody one or 2% to go do that and try to do something that's really not attainable, that's, that's a, that's a negative to your, your outcome as well. So that's a, that's a big, a big part of the story.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, that's effectively the sort of second point you made, uh, of, of the three about you know, you, you kinda, your investment checklist. So diversification is your friend. Keep costs low. Now, there's another intriguing thing, and again, business owners and entrepreneurs, they often are very cost conscious in their business, which is one of the reasons they've been successful. They haven't, they haven't wasted assets. They've deployed resources effectively. Um, the investment industry has got a curious way of pitching or, or, or the, the costs. And if you say to somebody, the co- I, it's only 1% or 2% a year, or your investment portfolio. It just sounds like a very low number. One or 2% of anything feels relatively insignificant. What we know is costs count and costs mount up and they compound over the years. Um, So tell me more about, because Dimensional are really focused very strongly on keeping a lid on costs, both in terms of the basic costs of owning a fund and also the underlying trading that goes on behind the scenes. So tell us a bit more about Dimensional's thoughts on keeping a limit on costs.
1: Yeah, you you know to, to your point, you definitely don't want to lose too much of your premium for costs. So you, you you get a premium for being in the stock market, and the premium over the last hundred years, let's say, is you know, call it four or five percent. So if you're going to give one or two percent back to a manager as a uh, expense ratio, you're giving back twenty five or thirty percent of the potential premium that you have for even being in the stock market. So you don't want to do that. You want to be careful about the, the, the cost of that portfolio. And then from there, there's, um, and every business owner would recognize, there's, there's many different costs uh, that, um, that do creep up in a business. And, and one thing that Dimensional has been very, very good at is there's explicit costs. So that's the, um, the standard rate that you see in the newspaper. It's, it's 1% or 2% or half a percent, whatever it might be. But then there's also implicit costs. And that's when you're actually managing the portfolio and trading the portfolio, uh, there's costs that come with stocks that have to be traded that might be illiquid. Um, and you have to be careful about how you trade those stocks. So I mentioned uh, index funds are very rigid. One example of that is an index fund will, will reconstitute, they will change their they'll make their trades once a year, let's say, or once a quarter. The problem there that is that if you're gonna trade once a year and everybody else is gonna trade once a year. The amount of volume that happens on that trading day—if everybody wants to buy something on the same day—that's going to push price up, and that's going to cost you as an investor. So, Dimensional has as uh, methods and approaches where we we push out trading across the entire year. We we trade daily, so we don't have the buildup uh, and focus it, that an index uh, fund might when they're trying to, to reconstitute their their index. Um, so, so the the problems with index are are there. And, you know, frankly, the, the founders of Dimensional were the folks that started the first index funds in the history of, of finance back in the early seventies. And what they've come to, I would call it index 2.0. They've recognized that there are some problems with indexing that can be fixed by this approach around daily implementation and so forth that Dimensional applies uh, in our current business. So I, you know, sometimes people say, what, how do you describe Dimensional? And it's kind of, you know, it's Index 2.0 or Index 3.0. It's a, it's a, an, a better version, a next version, a newer state of of what is a really good concept at its core, which is the whole passive or indexing kind of a concept.
0: Yeah, uh, interesting. Again, the the idea of and the word, the word often used certainly in the UK is a tracker fund, a tracker. We track the index. Slavishly yeah. track the index. My experience again of successful entrepreneurs is I don't want to track the index. I'm a winner. I don't want to get the, the the average return, which is another misunderstood concept. First of all, but then the next level is the dimensional. Are not that they're not a tracker fund, as you say. They're they're tracker two they There are there another version of it, grabbing all the various concepts and applying it to a, a basic, a, a basic idea. And as a quick aside, anyone who wants to dig more into that and the sort of foundations of the the early days of Dimensional, and the whole sort of rise of the index movement, I interviewed Robin Wigglesworth a few episodes ago, who's written this really interesting book called Trillions, which tracks that, excuse the pun, but tracks the whole, the history and the evolution of this complete fundamental shift in the investment management industry. Really, really interesting conversation I had with him and a really good book. And Dimensional are, are mentioned heavily throughout, throughout that book. So... Worth worth checking out. Now, what's intrigued me is that this is this. I always see dimensional as. um, I mean, the word is used as evidence basis research. What what we know is we started the conversation, Dave, talking about sport, and whether it's sport or politics or investment, everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's team is better than your team or my team. Everyone's political party is better than the other one. So. Human beings, we love to have an opinion. And when it comes to the world of investment, <laughs> everyone's got an opinion. The thing that I like about uh, Dimensional in particular is it's, it's rigorously researched. There's academic evidence, empirical research that sits behind the philosophy. This is not um, you know, Dimensional's founders and a few people sitting around the room and saying, I think this and I think that. So share with me, if you will, a bit more about the kind of the academic rigor that sits behind the philosophy of dimensional. That's
1: a really, really important point. And one I think for these business owners that are listening, I think is something to really think through. Um, you know, when, when you when you think about every area of business, every area of life, um as you progress through that uh that that specific area, uh, you're gonna see more and more rigor and more and more data that comes up. So a, as an athlete, as a sports person, you know, in the U.S., for instance, or, you know, in, in baseball, uh, there's it used to be, oh, if you're a pitcher um, and you're six foot four and you can throw the ball pretty hard and, and a, a scout sees you and likes the way you look, uh, then they're going to sign you and, and and so forth. And, and what's happened, there's a great book called Billy Ball, a great movie called Billy Ball, uh, where they the, the data started kind of um, coming into the sport and the data started suggesting how to analyze players and analyze different approaches to how you defend and how you how you pitch players and so forth. So the data actually then made the the sport more efficient. And I'm sure if you look at football in the in the UK and the pitch, I mean I'm sure there's all kinds of data, not only of who's going to take the penalty kick, but yeah. you know, if you if you push the ball to the left side versus the right side or if you have three three people back versus two you know, and do you succeed? And so there's data on these things. As people look at any profession more closely, the data starts to suggest certain trends and certain um, ideas that, that make the most sense. So that's what's happened in, in the capital market space. In the early days, it was just, you know, you're a smart guy, Alan, uh, I'm a semi-smart guy. I'm going to pick a stock and and, and hopeful, hope that my opinion actually is the one that plays out in the end. And that was finance. When I was in at Wall Street back in the uh, early 90s, mid 80s, um, and what's kind of transitioned or tra- uh, transpired since then is this idea of data, um, rigor, uh, statistics, and if you start looking at the data, and this is where really the index movement started, was that you know over the last over the 50 years prior to indexing started, starting looking at the performance of active managers. Active managers didn't add value, so yeah, you you want to win and you want to compete, and and we're entrepreneurs, we're all capitalists, we want to win. But it turns out that the stock pickers couldn't beat the average. They couldn't beat a just a a set of uh, securities in a portfolio. So that was an aha moment. And that's why indexing and tracker funds started, because people couldn't beat the indexes. And that's why the index uh, business here in the U.S., I'm sure it's happening in the U.K. as well, has become a massive, massive percentage of the overall business. Uh, so that was what kind of transpired and and it was just a recognition that the data was suggesting something other than what people thought uh, or people had an opinion on which was uh these really smart managers could go find a stock that was undervalued or overvalued um my old mentor i mentioned Dan Wheeler he he had a great analogy back in the day you know his his point was these stock pickers and active managers you know they have CFAs and MBAs and PhDs and they're very smart and he says so they're 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 good You know, well-educated people. The problem is, it's similar to a uh, a bass fisherman, the greatest bass fisherman in the world, going out to a dry lake and asking him to find some bass or or, or catch or catch bass. You can't do it because there's no bass in the lake. Yeah. So that's the whole point. If, If from a conceptual perspective, if you believe in the idea of market efficiency and market equilibrium, and that prices immediately reflect all the information that's out there. The question is, Is, is do you, would you bet on one of us individually or would you bet on this collective machine called the market that's, that's driving prices very, very rapidly to some equilibrium point? And what all the data suggests is that that machine, the market, has done a really, really good job of pricing uh, inf- information into, into market prices. And that's, that's the bet you're making. So if you're, if you're going to go down the, the tracker space or the active management space, um, you know the 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 tracker side suggests that it's very very difficult for active guys to add value. Now, dimensional being competitive people and and you know and and smart um, progressive people around the markets, we've as I mentioned, we started our founder started in the tracker space, but then they've recognized also that, that there are ways to add value above and beyond a tracker, and that as you mentioned is through trading very very efficiently on a daily basis, and also then. Positioning the portfolio in certain premiums, certain stock premiums that we have seen have had added value over, over time, which are smaller cap stocks, value stocks and so forth. So you can win. That's the one thing I'd tell the, the competitive uh, business owner out there is you, you can still win, but you can win in a very, very efficient, focused, you know, low cost, diversified manner. By actually tracking and trying to, to capture these premiums that we have seen are out there in the market space for for people to to capture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's when I first came across Dimensional. It just struck me that there was it, it was an organization that was run by almost scientists in a way, as opposed to salespeople. You know, first and foremost because. We know, I'm not sure if he's still on the board, but certainly somebody who's a big part of the dimensional story, Eugene Farmer. We've got Ken French. You've got some people who are legendary, who actually were there, who were who were doing the research, who were finding this information out, who were bringing it to the wider audience. And they're part of your organization, part of the history you know and, and the future and, and clearly fundamental part of the philosophy. So this is, as I say, really important to make this clear. This is not a view or a, or a thought process or an idea. This is just rigorous data analysis research over multi-decades, which has ended up in a in, you know, number of these people literally winning Nobel prizes. So this, this is, this is serious stuff. This, this is, this is uh, as, as good as it gets, frankly. But one thing, one question I've got for you, if this is so good and this works so well, why is organizations like dimensional and even indexing as well. Why is it still in the minority? Why is there still the majority of investment money or investment management industry is run on exactly the opposite, it's, is is run by, I can beat the market, I can trade in and out, I can predict the future, I can beat everyone else. That remains in terms of, I know the balance is changing, but the last time I looked, most money managers were still, you know, attempting to beat everyone else and charging these, you know, expensive fees in order to do it. And so a lot of investors and some listeners to this, this podcast will have their money deployed in that way. Why is it still so popular if all the evidence tells us the opposite? Well, frankly, there's a lot more
1: money to be made uh, in that space. You mentioned 1.5% uh, versus 15 basis points. That's one-tenth of the cost. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of money there to advertise, a lot of money to market. There's a lot of uh, as, you know, uh, ability to, to pitch those kind of stories. They're not necessarily good for the investor, uh, but they do have a lot of, um, you know, um, excess, um, you know, revenue. I'd call it to be able to to do those types of things that drive the the interest in those uh, those type types of uh, portfolios. But with that said, you know, when I started the in business, indexing in the U.S. was probably three percent of the overall investable assets. Now it's it's I think it's north of fifty percent. Right. So the idea, even though it doesn't have the kind of the advertising budget, uh, just by the fact that it's actually a, a, been a good a good solution is one that's actually taken pretty much, I'd say, the majority of of uh, asset um, coverage here, and the particularly in the U.S. and the UK is probably in the same boat. Um, but the movement towards the kind of the more passive indexing oriented uh, uh, stock uh, portfolios is 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 really really strong. And and you look at the assets that are flowing in and out of uh, mutual funds here in the U.S. It's it's completely negative on the active side and and completely positive on the the index or tracker side, um, and so there's a, a pretty massive change. One other comment I just was going to make too, which I think is important. Uh, David Booth, our founder, says this all the time. You know, we, we've had we have five uh, Nobel Prize winners associated with our firm uh, over over the years of its existence. Uh, no other firm, no other asset manager in the world has close to five Nobel Prize winners uh, associated with uh, with their business, and. The interesting part about that, David Booth will always point out, is that all five of those uh, Nobel Prize winners got their Nobel Prize winners, Nobel Prizes after they were working with Demential. <laughs> okay. So oftentimes, you know, the you know, firms will add a Nobel Prize winner by cutting a big check to say, hey, we have a Nobel Prize winner on our board. Yeah. We had all five of those uh, uh, professors basically involved in the business before they became Nobel Prize winners. So this this place, to your point, I I consider myself a reasonably smart guy, but they're, they're the, the amount of intellect and horse, uh, mental horsepower around here is, is at such a high level. Yeah. Uh, the nice thing that I think for advisors like yourself, they can be confident that uh, you have, you know, we have, you know, 30 some odd PhDs in our research department. You have five Nobel Prize winners. You have, you have a lot of people thinking about what is the best solution? What is the most efficient solution to access and deploy your capital in the capital market? That's all we do. And we don't do anything other than asset management, so that, that's another important point that I think that uh, has resonated for advisors and for clients as well.
0: Definitely, definitely, yeah. That's um, that, that. Yeah, the, all, for those reasons and more is is you know uh, is why we and my my firm and a lot of good advisors that I know uh, have a strong relationship with Dimensional and am pleased to be associated and recommend. This is not designed to be an advertisement. This is I'm, I'm here just to sort of share. My story and 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 sort of allow the, a wider audience to learn more about, as I, as I said earlier on, best kept secret. Now you did talk earlier on, or, or we we alluded to the role that advisors play within within this this setup. Now again, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs may attempt to do this stuff themselves. They may hire. They may look for a wealth manager, a wealth advisor of some some description. Dimensional's got an interesting relationship with advisors. For example, I can I can confirm that Dimensional don't deal with every advisor that is on the marketplace. You've got a fairly rigorous approach and 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 firms like us have to jump through a few hoops to be permitted to have an association with Dimensional and to recommend our funds. But when we talk about the role of an advisor and and imagine you were speaking to a you know a wealthy entrepreneur, someone who's just recently sold their business and they do want to work with somebody what are the key credentials or do you have a sort of little checklist or things that they should be thinking about if they're going to be interviewing several advisors? And they want to find the optimum, the best advisor to work with them.
1: Well, I would come back to just the real simple things we talked about. I mean, I think, um, you know, independence is important. You, you want to have uh, an advisor that has the ability to make the right choice for the, on behalf of the client's uh, best interest. Uh, so, you know, an advisor who, you know, as we used to like to say, sits on the same side of the table as a client, they're not representing anybody else but the client. So they get paid directly by the client. That's important. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm listening to an advisor speak and they start talking about an, an, an individual stock they like and how they would, would buy that particular stock, that would be a red flag to me. Uh, I would want to hear an advisor talk about diversification. I'd want to hear an advisor talk about costs. I'd want to hear an advisor talk about tax efficiency. Uh, And then, you know, of course, I'd want to have a a relationship with the advisor that um, is is intimate um, in terms of just family dynamics and things that I can uh, speak to that advisor about. So, you know, my personal, my advisor, and obviously people say, why do you have an advisor? You're an investment person. You know, all this stuff about investments. And my advisor you know, I, I'm a busy guy. I'm a you know CEO of a of a pretty large company, and I I spend a lot of time on that front. And as you mentioned earlier, with some of the entrepreneurs you work with, you know, there's there's kid dynamics and sports and family stuff that you know I want to focus on. So I do not want to think about that part of my life and and world. But my advisor basically has the keys to that entire part of it, and and he is the one who, uh, you know, who will um, you know. And, you know, they do my taxes. They they do my estate planning. They think about uh, my charitable giving. They'll they'll send me a note on, on you know what I might want to do from a charitable perspective. They 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 give me ideas on um, on different family uh, you know uh, educational aspects and so forth. So there's a lot of different just conversations I have. And uh, the main thing I've I heard about I heard this from a UK advisor one time is uh, I think it was David Jones actually who who mentioned he had heard it from an advisor saying that you know. The key is you want to have somebody in your life that if you, God forbid, you weren't here and I've got four kids and a wife, um, that I would be able to just hand a phone number to my wife and say, here, here's my advisor. I trust them completely. We've worked together on every financial and family dynamic over the last 20 or 30 years. And that's my go-to person. Um, and I'm very confident and comfortable with that. So I think you want to have that kind of relationship with your advisor. I think you want to have the personal relationship as well as the, you know, the the kind of more knowledge based um, uh, relationship. But uh, that those are those are really it's a really important part of your life. And I think particularly for business owners who are now in that success post success career uh, part of their time,
0: I think it's important to have that uh, relationship in your life. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more with you, David. Exactly. It, it seems to me that some of the the kind of the, the issues or the problems, as perceived, in my opinion, and I've been doing this quite a long time now. But the kind of the one there are there are advisors who focus solely on the investments, and as you say, and I can find this stock or this fund or something else, and that's all the conversations around the investments, and then apologising when they underperform, and say, no, but I've got a better one. Um, and I can tell you enough. In in our experience, we spend very little time now with clients. When we meet clients on a regular basis because we've kind of. We've almost won that battle. We, we're associated with Dimensional. They're not the only organization that we work with, but we have a lot of, a lot of time and, and um, a lot of our client money is invested with Dimensional. So it's like we don't need to change that too much. Of course, we, we review things, we kick the tires, we make sure everything remains up to date and appropriate. But the investment piece is quite straightforward now, which allows us to do more of that trusted advisor role talking talking about I always, I always talk about our, our role is at the intersection of money, business, family, and life. Yes. And it's all those things together. And and that's what the entrepreneur wants. They wouldn't they do want to talk about their business, or they've probably got a new idea. They want to kick that around with you and have a conversation about it. They want to talk about their children or or, or you know one's going to university, one wants to start a you know a family, et cetera, et cetera. So you so the experience uh, uh, there and they want they want to have this trusted advisor relationship, I think, and not so much all about the managing the money. Because as I say, I think we've got the academic research which says your money could not be more efficiently looked after. Let's talk about other things which are relevant to your circumstances. So I think, and interestingly, having worked with, you know non-dimensional a long time, and of course we we go to various events and we meet other dimensional advisors. And by and large, they are high quality. They've gone the extra mile. All this stuff takes time. And for us, we're a small business, but it takes us time and effort and energy to understand the academic research, to read the papers, to spend time researching it ourselves on behalf of our clients. And we don't have to do that. We can just get an off-the-shelf product or outsource to an active manager. So we tend to find that the better advisors are ones that associate with dementia, who do the sort of things, who do... Comply, if you like, with a checklist that you just kindly shared with advisors. I think that's really helpful. If anyone's listening to this and they're looking to hire an advisor, so just you know, replay this and listen to those key points that you just you just explained. So, Dave, this has been fantastic. It's been really, really helpful so far. Really insightful. I'm simply here to try to create a resource, in this case, with your help, for business owners, entrepreneurs, and even those that are advising them, sort of around the edges. If, if and when, when they've inverted commerce, when they've won, and when they've had you know a financial reward, a financial payment for all those, as someone else called it, blood, sweat and years of building a business, then and they've got some options and choices, and they'll be courted by all the big names, all the private banks, just to have you know an outlet or somewhere they can go and learn more about uh, before they start committing their investment capital. So this has been super helpful, and I really appreciate your time, Dave. A um, couple of questions uh, before we before we wrap up. Um, over the years, I mean, you must have. I, I, you know, we've talked in the past. I know that you, you you know you read a lot and you consume information. If you are speaking to someone who's a business owner and beginning to think about this sort of stuff, do you have any resources that you could recommend? Are are there any good books? Are there any I don't know podcasts, films, uh, anything that someone should? dive into in terms of resources to learn a bit more about the sort of things we've been talking about
1: well you mentioned one of them i think um i I did have a chance to get interviewed by robin Wicklesworth as well in london a few years ago and and i think that book trillions was 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 incredible you know lengthy masterpiece yeah (laughs) uh and probably you know for the average reader it's 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 a lot of information a lot of deep information but a lot of storytelling too so it's become it's a very interesting book um but, yeah, I think just, you know, I think if, in my mind, if you can just, um, you know, I mean, the Dimensional website, I think, is a great site just for, for general knowledge. And, and I know there's a lot of advisor, um, you know, podcasts and so forth that um, are helpful as well. Uh, I think those are, you know, you just want to stay from away from the, the advertisements and the, and the stuff that's kind of very, very commercial. I think you, you do have to do a little bit of work and a little bit of research, but it comes back to, you know, a view on the market. And I I would ask every advisor, you know, what what's your view on this on the capital markets on the stock market? And if it's if it's the answer is the you know, prices reflect information and it's an information processing machine, and we think markets are efficient and in equilibrium, I think that's a great answer because then that's going to lead to all the things that we've just spoken about: it's low cost and diversification and so forth. And then that's going to free you up to have time to actually really think about. The the wealth aspects that you mentioned, Alan, that uh, do circle around the investment story uh, that that's important. So you got to have the investment engine, and I think you know in my mind, obviously I've been with Dimensional for thirty years, so I I I can kind of give the the plug for Dimensional. But I think I think we do it better than anybody else. Uh, tracker funds are fine. Um, but Dimensional is, a, is an elevation uh, from from tracker funds, and they're more efficient, and they, they, they deliver better returns over time. And, and you know, you, you still have a chance to win uh, versus a tracker yeah. fund, I guess. You know, there's an assumption that trackers just kind of match, and, and you'll never win, and you'll yeah. never lose. But uh, I think with Dimensional, you can do that. So that, that's an important part as well.
0: Yeah, uh, you absolutely agree. And this is the point for the the very kind of the the, the, the winning mentality entrepreneur you can get. Above market returns by using sort of the the tools and the tactics deployed by Dimensional, but you don't have to do it by taking huge risks and bets and 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 you know choosing the odd stock. You can still be you know hugely diversified. But um, it's just it's just I think it's just intelligent to my mind. It's just deploying intelligent academic based uh, ideas and and research and just just being smarter than everyone else is trying to beat. <laughs> That's the challenge with all these PhDs and the clever. Bit each one is trying to compete against each other. So you might be super clever, but so is the other guy on the other side of the trade, whether it's buying or selling. So that's really helpful. And so as you say, you mentioned it a moment ago, anyone's listened to this who wants to learn more about Dimensional, fabulous website, I think it is. I'll put, I'll put a, a link to it on the show notes. I think it's called, it's, it's simply, I think it's just dimensional.com or mm-hmm. DFA, Dimensional Fund Advisors. But I'll put a link. And there's some pretty useful, helpful educational information. People want to read it, download it. Um, and watch it and, and as you say and I'll put there are a couple of good podcasts that people can find find out about as well. So this will be very, very uh, yeah, be very helpful and um, useful resources for people to learn more about. As we're winding our way towards the end, Dave, um, I just want to reflect on something. I do ask this of, of a lot of people speak on this, on this podcast, and it's the idea of of wealth. And I, I don't, when I say wealth, I mean true wealth. Um, you've um, you've obviously had a degree of um, you know, success yourself, a high degree of success, financial and, and business and otherwise, and you have met and associated with and, and spoken with and worked with people who've had a significant amount of economic, financial success. What's your definition of true wealth? Mm, great question. Um, well, I, I, I look at two things. For, for me,
1: I mean, I definitely you know, feel and I'm sure every... Parent and um, you know partner and so forth feels the same way. It's, it's it's family, right? I mean, I think if when my family is uh, happy and progressing and feeling good about life, then then I'm I'm happy, and I think that's a that's a success uh, in my mind. So I, I think that's a part of it. Um, and also, I always just try to point it out to people. And I'm sure every entrepreneur that's listening. You know, part of the the fun and the excitement and the the pride is is looking back on progress and work. Uh, it's not necessarily the accolade or not necessarily the bucket of money or the the title or the promotion or whatever it might be uh, that really makes me feel um, positive or happy about uh, you know what I'm doing. It, it it is the actual work. It's rolling up the sleeves and and in the, my sporting days, it was you know where was the joy the joy was going in the gym and just shooting shots every day and getting better it wasn't necessarily oh i was all-league or all-american it was that that's a that's an outcome of of that work so you know kind of the recognition of the the daily work that happens and then then turns into something that would be considered quote-unquote a success and i'm sure every entrepreneur um uh, out there listening would feel the same way. It's it, it's the daily grind. You know, it's the love of the love and the passion of what you're doing, and recognition that you're doing it well, and you're actually getting better every day. You're waking up and you're, you've you've gotten just a little bit better. So that progress, I think, is the one that makes, uh, in my mind, when you say, okay, what would what what would you be most proud of? It's it's never anything that's monetary or awards or titles. It's always about hey, how how did I do every day, and and did I did I work hard at something. And whether i succeed or not succeed i mean as long as i put the effort in and work that's what i try to tell my kids it's like that's all you can really stand on at the end of the day uh, you don't you know success is going to be determined or, or named by by people outside of you but if you can internally look at yourself and say you know i put everything i got i what i had into it and i worked hard at something then that's success and whatever you get on the external part is 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 fine whatever that outcome may be
0: yeah, it's a great definition, David. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And and money, to money is the byproduct of those things. It's not. I don't know. I really don't know any entrepreneur who just does it for the money. That's all the reason I'm doing it. It's the reason I'm working hard is to make money. It's nice when it comes, but that's absolutely not the reason. So what you said there, I couldn't agree more. Exactly, it's a beautiful definition of true wealth. So thank you very much for sharing that. And thank you also just for, for joining us today, all the way from sunny Austin, Texas. Really appreciate your time uh, and all you've shared. And I think it's going to be a helpful resource for for anyone really listening, but anyone who's kind of interested in learning more about capital markets, investing, how to do the right thing, how to do the smart thing to perhaps not be seduced by the, the sort of shiny billboards and the advertisements and all the rest of it, because it's not academically rigorous. It's not backed by decades of science. And if anyone wants to learn more, as I say, there's various resources that they can go and find out a bit more about before they start uh, investing. So for now, Dave Butler, CEO of Dimensional, thank you very much for joining us today.
1: Hey, Alan, thank you. And uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, And as I always like to say, you know, your clients are very lucky to have you working with them. Um, So uh, we appreciate the work you do as well.
0: Thanks for making it this far. I hope you found this episode to be helpful. If so, I'd like to ask you for a small favor. Can you please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review as that's one of the best ways for others to find it. And please send a link to the podcast to three friends or colleagues who you know will find it helpful. That way we can spread the word and everyone can benefit. Thanks again for tuning in and being part of our community. I'll see you next time.